morning. You can be seated. Now, there are some things that you can't fully understand. There are a lot of things that you can't fully understand until you experience them, until you come into contact with the reality of the thing that you're trying to, to understand. And um, you, can, you can read about it, you can learn from experts and other authorities, but until you actually come into contact with it, you're not going to have a full understanding. It's not going to come alive to you. I was thinking as an illustration of teaching a child to ride a bike, which I've had occasion to do several times in my large family. And uh, so Josie and I are teaching our kids to ride a bike, and we explain to them how, how to do it. You know, you, you got to sit in the... You sit in the seat and try to balance your weight in the center of the bike, and then you've got to get some momentum going, or you're going to fall because that's what they usually start out. It's going real slow, and it, you know, it falls over. So you got to have the balance, and then you got to have the momentum. And so they hear that instruction, and that's necessary for them to to get going. Um, then usually there's a there's a place in the training where they say, Did you, "I can't do it. It's not going to work for me." They're, they're afraid to keep going. And then we have to kind of convince them based on our experience and our authority. Yes, you, you can ride this bike. And there's a tradition of bike riding here that you can participate in. Right. Other people have done it and, and you can do it, too. And and so just trust our authority. And, and that's that's important, too, for them to trust that experience and authority. And then. But it all kind of has to click and it only clicks when you give them that shove, take the training wheels off, and off they go. And then finally, it, bike riding comes alive for them as something they've experienced. And they, they know beyond authority and beyond instruction, now they come into contact with, with this reality. And so, you know, um, in, in many ways, our um, understanding of God is like that. Today's Trinity Sunday, and this is the Sunday that we... Remember the doctrinal truth that the God we worship is one God, one in essence, one in nature, one in terms of his being. He's divine and all members of the Trinity, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit share this divine nature equally and have so for eternity. God is one, but has revealed himself as three one God in three persons. And there's a distinction in terms of the relationship and the roles that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit play. And so you have this doctrine and you can and you ought to receive it based on authority that's been passed down to you. And the, the authority is there in Scripture. There's Scripture that, that points to the reality of the divinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and the distinction between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in their various roles. So you have that authority of Scripture and, and the early church gave us these creeds to help us understand it using philosophical language. And we recite the Nicene Creed every week and there's that language of unity and personhood. And all that's given to us and all that is necessary. But this doctrine does not come alive for us. It doesn't really click into place until we reflect on how we have known God. As Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The instruction and the authority is necessary, but the key is knowing this God as my Father, as the Son who gave his life for me, and as the Holy Spirit who brings me in contact with the Father and the Son. 
And so I want to talk about that today. Um, I have a three point sermon today (laughs) to talk about our relationship to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I want to start with what Paul says in Romans chapter eight. Especially, I want to key in right now on Romans 8.15. And this beautiful verse. Where Paul talks about the Christian's relationship to God. Knowing God as Father. In Romans 8.15, he says to these Roman Christians, and he says to all Christians, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. To be a slave in a household is to be in a place of fear and insecurity. I mean, you could be, you could be sold, you could be traded. Uh, I think that was the, the, the typical experience of, of a slave in ancient times was, was to be in this, this place within the household of insecurity. But Paul says, if you are in Christ, uh, that is not your place in the household of God. That is not your position as it relates to God. You know God as Father. And, and to know God as, as Father in, a, in an intimate way. And so he says, it's through the work of the Holy Spirit that you've been brought into the family of God, adopted as it were, as sons and daughters of God. And through the work of the Holy Spirit, you can relate to God in this way. You can call God Abba, Father. Now, Abba is an Aramaic word. And the first century Palestinian Jews, uh, Jesus spoke Aramaic. And um, some of the first words that a little toddler would say would be Abba, Daddy, or Ima, Mama. Abba, Ima, Mom, Dad. This is the language of the family. This is the language of intimacy. You know, and it's wonderful as a father to hear my little children when they started saying daddy to me. Sam's two years old and he calls me daddy. And the other day he called me buddy. I don't know. I call him buddy. So he just started calling me buddy. And it's heartwarming as a father to hear that, you know, it's language of intimacy. But the interesting thing is that um, and as, as that language evolved, it, it took more of a connotation of sort of reverent address to the father of the family. But it still was familial kind of took on the connotation of dearest father that a, an adult child, a, a daughter or son would say to the father, dearest father. So it has this reverential tone, but also this still familiar, uh, familial tone. It's family language. And before Jesus, uh, according to some scholars that, that have that have looked at all the devotional language, uh, the use of God in Jewish devotional language during this time period, Jesus is the only one who addresses God like this. With this family language. And he taught, he teaches us to call God Abba, right? In the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, our Abba. So in other words, what, what Paul is saying, he's picking this language Abba up from Jesus and this tradition of, of intimate address with, with God is that through Christ we can know God the Father as one who, who cares for us, who provides for us, who knows us intimately, who loves us. 
But God is not the distant one, the man upstairs. But this family language, he is our our father who knows and loves and cares and provides for us. And this is this is the gift that we have as Christians to know God this way through Christ. We can know God as our heavenly father. And I know that um, this language can be difficult for some people today. Because some people have have uh, suffered a difficult father and maybe even an abusive father. Not everybody has been as fortunate as many of us who had good fathers, not perfect. No father is perfect, but I had a good father, have a good father. But some have not had a good father and have suffered at the hand of their father. Some don't even know their father. There's a problem in this country with fatherlessness and there's an ache that that creates. And so, you know, there is a problem for some people using this language of God as father or addressing God as father. And I just want to say something. I'm going to be sensitive to that and say a couple things about that. One is the reason that we call God father is this is the way God has revealed himself to us in Scripture. And this is how Jesus teaches us to address God as our father. And um, and, and so we receive the revelation of who God is from God. We don't make it up as we go along. And that puts us in this place of humility. And so um, this is who God has revealed himself to be. Not male. Okay, God is spirit, doesn't have a body, but he demonstrates fatherly characteristics, the best fatherly characteristics that you can think of. This is how God has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And, and the second point I want to make of why it's important for us to retain the language of fatherhood is that we learn what it means to be father and to be son from God as he's revealed himself in Scripture. We, re, we learn it's important for fathers to learn from God, the father, what it means to be a good father, a loving father, rather than to project onto God our experience of fatherhood. So it's important to retain this language of fatherhood because it provides a corrective of distorted views of fatherhood. There's a theologian named Ellen Cherry. He's, she's an Orthodox uh, theologian, and she writes about this, this the importance of, of maintaining the language of fatherhood as a, as a, as a correction to distortions of, of ideas of fatherhood that would promote the use of power in a violent and coercive way. And the correction is we see God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, using His power to persuade people by His love, His self-giving, sacrificial love, and the power that's embodied at the cross of Jesus Christ is an ironic power. It's a self-giving power, the power of love. Of course, the power of the resurrection. God the Father is a God of power, but it's a God who is giving himself to the world in love and calling the world to himself. And so we need to retain this language of, of fatherhood. God has revealed himself to us in this way. And, and, and Paul is saying that as believers in Christ, as if we're in union with Christ, then we have this privilege of knowing God this way, this level of intimacy, Abba. Father, I know God, not as this distant man upstairs, but as a God who loves me and knows me, is intimately acquainted with the details of my life and cares and provides. And I can trust him. That can be an anchor for me throughout my whole life 
And even as I face eternity, I know that God is my father and and I'm secure in this household. It's not a place of fear. It's a place of security, of identity as God's son, as God's daughter. So that's the, the, the language of father and knowing God as father. And then we know God as father through God, the son. It is the work of the son of God that makes it possible for us to know God the Father in this way. In our story in Exodus, Moses has an encounter with God. And what does he do? He hides his face. Because he recognizes the holiness and the transcendence and the majesty and the power of this almighty God. And that is the normal reaction. When you encounter the holiness and the power and the might of God is 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 a sense that I'm not worthy to encounter this. But through the Son, we are. Through the work of Christ, He makes us worthy to stand in the presence of a holy and mighty God. And so it's through the work of the Son that we know God as Father. And Jesus talks about that in this dialogue that He has with Nicodemus, the great teacher, uh, religious leader, comes to to Jesus, and Jesus then teaches the teacher of Israel about the kingdom of God and about what's happening in, in him and, and, and how Jesus is, is instrumental in what God is doing as the kingdom of God unfolds. And Jesus makes a statement which is the most famous statement in the New Testament about what God is doing in Jesus and what God has done for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. See, because Jesus the Son is one with God, because the life that is in Jesus is the same life that is in God the Father, because Jesus is one with God, he can bring us the salvation and the life of God the Father. This is why that doctrine is important. Jesus is fully divine. The life of God, the the, the, the very life that he has is the life of God. The salvation that he brings really is the salvation of God. He's one with God. And God, motivated by love for the world, gave his son so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have this life, this eternal life of God. We can experience this now, know this now and forever. The life and the love of God. And then Jesus talks about before you get to the famous John 316 verse, the verse that, you know, you see people holding signs at ball games with this verse. And that's a wonderful thing. People hopefully go look that up and and read. But then the context is important, too, because now Jesus talks about how he gives this eternal life to the world. And he alludes to this story, this strange story of Moses and the serpents in the wilderness He says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whosoever believes in him may have eternal life. And that story is referring to the the time when the people of Israel were rebelling against God. And they were complaining against God and they were rejecting God and they were rejecting Moses, who God sent to lead them. And so God sent these serpents to wake them up. Nothing like a serpent to wake you up. But these were poisonous serpents. And some people were getting bit by these serpents and they were dying. And so Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. And God tells Moses to make a serpent out of bronze and to put it up on a pole. 
And when the people are bit by the serpent, they can look at that bronze serpent that's on the pole. And God says, and, and as they look upon this serpent, they will be they'll be spared from death. They won't die. Why? Not because there's any magical powers in the serpent. It's because by looking upon that serpent, they are trusting in God's promise. This is how I'm going to save you from judgment. And so it is a, it's a form of faith. It's an expression of faith to look upon the promise that God has given. This is how you're going to be saved from judgment. And Jesus is saying, he says, the son of man must be lifted up, just like this serpent who was lifted up. And he's referring to himself and he's talking about the cross and he's saying, and whoever looks upon me on the cross in faith will be saved from the judgment of God. And God has provided this way of salvation. Why? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. that whosoever will believe on him will not perish, will not perish in the judgment of God, but have this eternal life. And so that's so important for us to understand that this is how God has saved us. This is how God saves us. This is how God shows us his love by providing his son on a cross to take the judgment that we deserve. You know, there's a lot there's been a lot of talk about the love of God and a couple of weeks ago we heard this the sermon at the royal wedding about the love of God and in many ways and this captured the world and it was good because it people began to talk about sermons. When's the last time that people in the in, in the media has talked about sermons and preaching? And so that was good and it got people's attention. And in many ways, that sermon was was powerful. And there were some very good aspects about that sermon, about the love of God. But one thing that was missing here was a particular focus on on Jesus and the cross of Jesus and the reason for the cross of Jesus, which is to pay the debt for our sin, to take the judgment that we deserve. And that the love of God is not just some sort of amorphous sort of floating thing out there, but it's focused in a particular way. It comes into focus on a particular way, in a particular way. That is the cross of his son, Jesus Christ. And we connect to the love of God and the life of God through the son. This is what we have to continue to uphold. This is what God has revealed to us, the way of salvation. And a Christian is somebody who knows who knows at the depth of their being that I have been saved by the Son of God. That my only hope of salvation is the Son of God and what He did for me at the cross. And because He's risen, I can trust that I'll have eternal life. This is, this is what it means to be a, a Christian, to know that God did this for me. It's for the world, but it's personal. It's for me. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who live. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And how did he show, Paul, that he loved you? He gave himself up for me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. If you know that truth, then you know the Trinity. If you know that Jesus is your Savior, that He loves you, and you can say along with Paul, 
that he gave his life up for you, then you know the Trinity. You may not be able to formulate it with the philosophical sort of theological language that is important, but it may not be ready at hand for you in terms of how you understand the nature of God. It's something you can learn and grow in, and we ought to do that. But if you just know what Paul says, then you know the Trinity kind of from the inside because it's God the Father you know loved you and gave you the Son, and the Son demonstrated his love at the cross, and the Holy Spirit brought that to life. So the Trinity's been active in your life. And we glorify and praise him for that today. We give praise to the triune God for his work in our life. And then the Spirit. The Spirit, the work of the Spirit. Real quickly here, let's just see what Paul says about the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer. He says in verse 13 that if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And for all who are led by the Spirit of God, you are sons of God, sons and daughters of God. And so there's two ways to live. There's the life of the flesh, which is a life of self-centeredness and a life of sin. And a life about getting my way. That's the life of the flesh. And that's the battle we're all in. And then there's the life of the spirit. And Jesus talks about the spirit with Nicodemus. This is the new life. This is the life of God in you. And it begins to change your desires. And it begins to change your affections. So that you begin to desire what God desires. And the things that you thought were so important. That animated your life 10, 15, 20 years ago. When you first became a Christian. Now those things are sort of losing their appeal. And what's more appealing is doing things that pleases the father. And you're still battling the flesh. You never get over that until you get to heaven. But there's this new life inside of you that's growing. New affections. New desires. New heart. And if that's happened in your life. That's the work of the Trinity. That's the work of the Spirit of God. You're you're being led by the Spirit of God. And it's through the Holy Spirit, he says, that you have this spirit of adoption by which you can call God Abba Father. You're not in a place of fear. God is not the great unknown. God is not a great question mark. God is not a philosophical idea. God is my Father who's given me His Son. And the Holy Spirit is in me. And leading me in this life. The work of the Holy Spirit. Some of you might remember the name. Nicky Cruz. Does that name ring ring a bell for some of you? Nicky Cruz. He wrote this book called The Cross and the Switchblade. And I read it when I was 15 or 16 years old. And it was a good thing to read when you're 15, 16 year old boy. Because he was a gang member in New York City. Puerto Rican gang member. And he was living a life according to the flesh. And uh, he talks about that and violence and other things that he was involved in until David Wilkerson, a preacher in New York City, shared the gospel with him and it revolutionized his life. And he wrote this book about it. Nicky Cruz wrote this book called Run, Baby, Run. And that was his testimony. And then a few years later, he wrote this book. And I didn't know about this until I came across an article this week. But a few years later, Nicky Cruz wrote a book on the Trinity called The Magnificent Three. The Magnificent Three. And he said in this book, now I'm not a theologian. He said, I don't, I'm not a Greek scholar. He said, uh, he said, I am just a Puerto Rican street kid who God picked up from the slums in New York. Just a Puerto Rican street kid whom God picked up from the slums in New York and made into a disciple and a, min- and a minister. But he said, there's one thing I know, that God is my father. And then he talks about 
the, the work of the Trinity in his life. See if this this resonates with you. He says, um, Jesus saved me. Uh, the Father forgave me. But it was the Holy Spirit that convicted me and brought me to my knees and showed me God. He showed me Jesus Christ and I was gripped by Jesus's strong love. And then I love this phrase. And then the Holy Spirit shoved me towards God. And I gladly fell into the arms of my heavenly father, the work of the Holy Spirit. He says, God is a magnificent father, a magnificent savior. But if it were not for the magnificent Holy Spirit, I would still be a wretched, hateful sinner. It is the work of the Spirit that brings us into contact with the life of God, the Father and the Son. So if, you, if you've experienced that, and I know, I know many of you have, most of us here have, this is a day to say thank you to the triune God, to praise the work of the Trinity in your life, in your story, in your history, Praise His name. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you don't have that relationship with God, it's yours for the asking. The Spirit of God is here, even now, calling you to know God as your Father. To come from a place of fear and distance from God, from a place of the flesh, of living life on your own terms, to coming to the place where he's revealed his love, the cross and his forgiveness. And that is a work of the spirit speaking to you about that even now. And in this service, we have a time later where we pray and we confess our sins. And that can be a time of real confession where you say to the Lord, these are the things that I've, I've done. These, this is the way that I'm going. I want to come home to you, Heavenly Father. And then you can come to communion and you can take the bread and the, and the wine with empty hands and you can make that an act of worship, an act of prayer, an act of surrender and saying, Jesus, I receive you into my life. And the Holy Spirit can make all this come alive for you today as you come to him in faith and humility. Amen. Amen.